Welcome to episode 381 of the Thinking Poker Podcast from Los Angeles, California. I am Sean Lango. From Owings Mills, Maryland, I'm Andrew Brokus. And from Las Vegas, Nevada, I'm Carlos Welch. So many of you will recognize Sean's voice. Uh, he made a, a point of saying that he'd been on the show many times and has not been acknowledged adequately for that. So Sean, here's the acknowledgement of you being one of our more frequent guests. Um, <laughs> but you certainly heard Sean's handiwork uh, because he has been our audio engineer since uh, almost the beginning with, with a few interruptions. Um, and you also have heard uh, Sean playing the bass on the... Um, our, our intro and outro music. That's right. Any bass guitar you hear and any uh, keyboard you hear is me on uh, any of the music on the show since probably around episode 50, 40s or 50s, I think, is when we kind of went, went, went in that direction. And now I feel like I've made this joke before, but I guess that makes you really by far our most frequent guest on the show. Oh, yeah, I, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you for, uh, for joining us once again. Oh, my pleasure to be here. And I want everyone listening to know that I am uh, on this call with Andrew and Carlos here. I'm looking at a very beautiful picture of Carlos uh, in a televised uh, poker situation here. It looks like he's facing a decision. Um, and uh, I just just thought everyone should have this image. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this picture is from uh, my trip to... Um, Run it up, Reno, and I think I cool. I think I might have had a set in this hand. <laughs> <laughs> this is yeah, Carlos's uh, Zoom image. Yes, Carlos's Zoom image is this uh, Run it up, Reno, and it's uh, you know it's just exciting when you see uh, someone you know with the nice like there's there's their name in the corner, there's the action and the chip stack, and I mean if you have a set, that's just even better. Yeah, fun fact, that white hand you see on my right is Spraggy. I cut his face out because that didn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> but it was fun playing with those guys. Nice, nice. That's great. Uh, Sean, I think the, the last time you were on the show, we had talked a little bit about um, kind of re returning to poker in, in the L.A. area. Uh, I'm reluctant to say post pandemic, but you know, with casinos having reopened, um, are you, what, what's your poker status now? Yeah, these days I am seldom at the commerce casino. Um, as much as I, I really truly do love going to commerce and playing. It's, uh, it's one of my favorite places I've played in the U S just because like, there's always so many games going and it's just, uh, you know, I think you've said, Andrew, how you like that. It's not like a very glamorous place. It's yeah. funny. Uh, a friend I made at commerce, uh, calls it CVS lighting. <laughs> <laughs> I like yes. the dinge. Yeah, it's got a good dinge, you know, it's it's not the most glamorous place you're ever going to play poker, but it's um, it's got its things that it's got, and uh, and I do miss it. But um, yeah, lately, really, the only poker that I've been um, able to get in has been just some, like, leftover COVID, uh, like, 2020-era um, home games that, like, it's either people that I knew who started it or people that I was playing in through friends of friends and like, yeah, just a couple of those games that are running on poker now. Um, you know, that, that sort of thing. And it's usually, it's usually like one, two, no limit, a little bit of one, one PLO in the mix. And uh, yeah, it's been really fun. Like it's, it's nice having like a casual game that runs all the time. I feel like I've listened to shows here where it'll be like, um, 
you know, someone talking about their home game that they always play with the same people. And uh, that's never been really something I had experienced until like 2020 and over the last one, two years, just like having a game where you're just like always playing with the same, you know, there's probably 30 people total in the player pool who are there on a regular basis, but it's small enough that you really do put in and more hands with the same, same folks. Although, I mean, what's the level of social interaction look like there? Um, that's, that's kind of the thing that I enjoyed. I mean, getting to know people and like getting to know how they play strategically can be kind of interesting in a way that helps you step outside of solve a world a little bit. But uh, that was really the thing that I enjoyed most about becoming a regular and in, in, mean, not, not in like a home game, but in smaller um, casino venues where it was almost home game, you know, what you were seeing a lot of the same people, uh, like in, in Pittsburgh or Lucky Chances, uh, you know, there was only one bigger game and it was most of the same people in that lineup when that game went. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, to bring it back to commerce for a second, I would say there was like, uh, two things at play there for me. One was that like, I was actually there on a very frequent basis compared to like when I lived in North Jersey and I would go down to Atlantic city, you know, I would be there for a couple of days at a time, you know, maybe once a month at the most. Um, so yeah, there was a little more, um, you know, social interaction at commerce. And then in this home games, there's basically a split, like one game that used to run a lot was um, always a zoom and, poker now thing so that was very social and that was um hosted by a friend i went to college with and uh, you know another musician and uh he still runs that game some but i just haven't been able to get in there as much the other poker now game it's really just like there have been a couple like weak attempts i don't want to call them weak attempts but you know just a couple not very popular uh movements to start a zoom um and it just never really took off. So it's, you know, people are in the chat box a little bit, but that's about the extent of the social qualities of that game. In a game where you're on Zoom, what are the ethics of like turning your video off while you're all in so people can't get reads on you? <laughs> I love this question because um, it was never a kind of thing that like got to a point where there were like, formal rules or any kind of like established etiquette for that stuff. Um, it was definitely something that caused a little friction a couple times. Oh, really? Because... I thought I was joking. <laughs> no, no. I'll explain. There was basically like a weekly, um, very small stakes cash game that would run and it was never an issue there, but maybe once a month or so um, the host would run a tournament and usually a few um, people that never played the cash games would show up and play the tournament. And, uh, you know, somebody who might be there every week that everyone knows who's like, you know, off taking care of his dog and like socializing with his family a little bit might have his video and sound off. But like the people who are just there for the first time are like, what's up with this guy? Why is his video off? Like he's, got this huge advantage over everybody. <laughs> and it's like, meanwhile, the person saying this is like limping every hand and like not raising with the nuts when they're bed into and stuff. So it's like, I would have won know. if it weren't for that guy with his video off. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh man. But yeah, that's, uh, that's the etiquette there is that like, there's no rules but someone's probably going to get mad if it's a tournament. Okay, so you're playing a little bit of uh, app game poker. You're mm -hmm. doing a little bit of podcast audio engineering work. Uh, what else is occupying your time? What else is occupying my time is uh, a project that kind of uh, came into my life very unexpectedly. <laughs> um, in 2020. So backing up maybe a decade, um, I took what was, you know, a lifelong obsession and interest in pizza. And I started tinkering with making my own pizza at home in a, in a bit more serious way. 
Um, you know, in younger years, if I was like, I want to try and make some pizza, I would just, you know, being in North Jersey with pizzerias everywhere, you could just walk into one and say, Hey, can I buy a couple doughs? And they'd charge you a few bucks and you, you get some dough and you go home and get some sauce and cheese together. And that's that. Um, but eventually I got frustrated with that because if you buy a dough from a pizzeria, that's supposed to stretch out to being like 20 inches and you're working in your home oven and you know, your surface to bake on is only 15 inches, you're going to get a disgusting thick pizza that you never really want to eat. So uh, this, this 10 years ago that I mentioned was when I went down a rabbit hole uh, on a website called pizzamaking.com and just read all of these posts. It was, it's the two plus two of pizza, except people are friendly. Um, that's the, <laughs> people are very, very generous with information and like, like friendly to a fault, like where you're like, this isn't even the internet. Is it like, why are people being so nice to each other? <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I, I learned a lot about, um, you know, sourcing ingredients from restaurant supply places. So you're using more of the right, you know, raw materials, and I learned a bit about, um, basically, in, in, the summary is crank your oven, your home oven up as high as it can go and get a surface to bake on that's like um, either some kind of stone or like a clay tile or sometimes people use like a steel plate, um, get something that can hold some heat. And uh, yeah, so, you know, a hobby of making pizza was born in that time. And um, this was like something I would do maybe three or four times a year, just have some people come over, make a bunch of pizzas. And uh, it was, it was just a little hobby. And uh, bringing us back to the year 2020, um, everything was shut down and you couldn't get flour in stores uh, but a buddy of mine was like, Hey, I just ordered a 50 pound bag of flour from this like mail order place. And, um, it hurt my Nick cast sensibilities because a bag of flour, typically in my experience for 50 pounds, you'd pay about like 20 bucks when I was living in New Jersey, um, to get one shipped, I think was like $65, and, uh, you know, wow. that, yeah, that was <laughs> hard to swallow, but, you know, it was also like, there's nothing going on. I'm, I'm staying at home all the time. I'm going to pay a little extra rake and get this bag of flour. And, um, that was the start of the modern era where I started making some pizzas for friends. And then it was sort of like friends of friends. And then I was like, a, a, a few people had been saying like, Oh, why don't you, you know, do a pop-up and sell some pizzas? And, um, you know, I knew of a favorite burger place in town here in Los Angeles that uh, started out selling burgers in their backyard um, and then eventually moved into a proper restaurant space. I was like, well, if these people sold burgers in their backyard, I can sell some pizzas out of my apartment and uh, hope for the best. And so uh, at that point, I started an Instagram account, posted up like a couple pictures and uh, started making pizzas available to first just friends and then the general public. And uh, I called it secret pizza because I was trying to maintain a certain level of discretion. I didn't want my neighbors like there's 10 apartments in my building and I didn't want to like get them annoyed at me for like selling pizzas out of my home. And I also didn't want to attract much attention from, um, you know, anyone that's in an oversight agency. <laughs> um, yeah, there's, there's cottage food laws here, which protects you if you're like making simpler products. But um, once you involve like cheese, uh, they're like, saying that you, you need to be a little bit more um, regulated. And uh, that wasn't an option for me out of my home, but I needed some money. I needed something to do. So um, 
what what was great was that uh, a lot of people out here are transplants from you know New York, New Jersey, other East Coast states, and um, there's this like attitude that works really well in my favor um, as a person who makes pizza in that style. You get the the, the common response is like, what you. This, this is supposed to be good New York pizza. Like, I don't believe that. I'm going to try it and tell you how bad it is. And, uh, <laughs> and what ends up happening is they'll try it and be like, oh, this is actually the right thing. And then they'll tell their friends. And then their friends will probably, like, have some doubts, too. And they'll come and try it. And uh, that's been sort of what's been going on for the past couple of years. And um, here's an exclusive for the Thinking Poker podcast. There's uh, in the works a permanent location, a uh, proper brick and mortar uh, spot for Seeker Pizza here in Los Angeles. Uh, I can't tell you when it's opening just yet because I don't even know. But stay tuned if you're uh, looking for pizza in this area. Instagram is at Secret Pizza LA. And uh, I'm hoping. Within the next uh, little while, I'll be starting to do some beginning stages of offering pizzas from there. And I don't expect that the place will be open and running full steam ahead for a little while. But I imagine that uh, hopefully in the coming weeks, there will be some pizzas coming out of the oven. And um, I'm happy to report that they're much better than what you can do with just like a basic home oven and... uh, yeah, looking forward to the next stages of this. What makes the oven better? Is that more more powerful? Like it's hotter? Yeah, that's a good question. It's a few things. So the, the high temperature of um, this oven is 650 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, for a home oven, you might get 5 to 550 typically. And, um, you know, you can do okay with that, um, but the higher temp is nice. And then the other thing that's like kind of maybe even more important than the higher temperature is this kind of oven is called a deck oven. And a deck oven, um, first of all, the size and shape, it's like a big rectangle. So it's good for putting a bunch of pizzas in there. Uh, But the thing I've been learning about recently is thermal mass. And thermal mass essentially is like uh, how much heat the oven holds. And if you imagine like the very, very old fashioned like um, bakery ovens that were sort of built into buildings, like if you're thinking about like New Haven style pizza, uh, hello, Nate, Um, there's... uh, there's, there's these ovens that were sort of built into the buildings and powered by coal. And once they got heated up, they would just hold their heat for like an entire day. Um, so compared to your home oven, th- that's like maximum thermal mass and your home oven is like minimum thermal mass. And then this oven is somewhere in between the two. It's, it's not like, um, you know, a piece of the architecture that's like uh just like thick 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 bricks but basically there's a line of fire bricks that um is on the ceiling of the oven and then the bottom of the oven is also stone so if you just pop a pizza or you know bread or whatever you're trying to bake in there um it has higher temperatures, like you said, and then more even temperatures that aren't going to be like exhausted as quickly by like opening and closing the door or putting in new products or, you know, taking out products that have been baked and stuff like that. That was the thing that always made me nervous about baking. And I'm, I'm fairly comfortable with, I mean, I don't make a lot of things, but I can, you know, cook for myself and th- I like the things that I can make. But baking has always been very scary to me because I make like stir fries and things that are very forgiving of like, oh, you could do it for 10 minutes or 30 minutes and it'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the need to sort of, uh, it's got to be the right temperature and you can't open the door too much and it's got to be even. And it's, it just, it feels very finicky to me. Yeah, you know, it's, it's true that baking is sensitive and like um, 
consistency is sort of rewarded. But that said, like, there is still room to, like, be a little loosey-goosey, especially if you're not absolutely, like, concerned about consistency as your top priority. Is, um, is this related to the concept of Nate Mavis time? Nate Mavis time. Um, you know, Nate Mavis time is, uh, for, for listeners who don't know, uh, NMT or Nate Mavis time is time that you're, uh, let me just try and remember the exact origins. Nate said something, uh, either on air or in one of his like blog posts that was, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase this to the best of my ability. Um, he was basically getting at that if you're trying to um, save money and kind of look at your finances and look at maybe ways to um, save a couple bucks here and there, he suggested that maybe if you put that same time and instead of dedicating it to trying to save money, you dedicated it to trying to figure out how to make more money you might actually end up coming out way better than just trying to save a few bucks here and there if you can, you know, increase your overall income. So that's the principle behind Nate Mavis time. And Nate Mavis time itself is just the time you spend trying to either figure out how to save a few bucks or better yet, in his opinion, um, generate a little bit more money. So Andrew, how would this, how would this be related to the, um, Piece of, piece of business. Uh, my, my hunch is that, or really it's Nate's hunch, um, is that that was sort of the, the origin of selling pizza for money was thinking about how could I make more money? Oh, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, it's, it's actually, um, I think Nate Mavis time came on my radar after I had already started selling pizza for money, but it did have a profound impact maybe, I don't know, a handful of months into selling pizzas, I basically um, shifted my process and my schedule from being like a once a week thing where I would just do as many pizzas as I could possibly manage in that one week. Um, And then I was like, you know, I kind of had this idea of like doing it multiple times in the week out of my home, you know, living here with my partner and just like, creating all that chaos in the kitchen would be an impossible thing to deal with. Um, But when I was sitting down and and having a little Nate Mavis time, I was like, well, what if I did significantly fewer pizzas per day, but did it two or three times a week? How would that come out? And, uh, you know, when I mapped things out and kind of scheduled it, I was like, oh, that does seem doable actually. And um, and that was like a direct application of Nate Mavis time right there, because it went from, you know, maybe an absolute maximum number of pizzas that I might sell if I was doing once a week would be maybe 30. And then if I was doing three days a week, but fewer pies, it could easily be 50 or even, you know, a couple more than that. So, um, yeah, that, that is the concept of Nate Mavis time in action. It feels like it's too entrenched at this point, but I would have called it Mavis minutes myself. Ooh, I mean, you know, there's, there's room. I, I, I think the more, um, the, the more Mavis, the better, as far as I'm concerned. Mavis. That was a, a dig at you, Carlos. Oh, absolutely not. No, no, no. I think, uh, <laughs> look at this guy stirring the pot. <laughs> I mean, if you live in a world where it's either or, I, I don't know. That's a, that's a pretty dark world. I've, uh, I've been a big fan of the Carlos era. I think the, um, so we've got a dog here that's barking and I'm, I'm going to give him some food. Um, but I am curious, is this going to be strictly like a, a takeout kind of place uh, or a takeout slash delivery? Or are you going to have tables at your uh, undisclosed location? Yeah. So um, it's always been takeout only when I did it out of my home. Uh, when I did it out of like a uh, friend's kitchen uh, here in L.A., that was 
the first time there were a couple like outdoor tables that people could take advantage of. Um, and this new iteration will have a few options. There will be the takeout option, of course. Um, there are a few very limited indoor seats, uh, kind of like counter style. <laughs> and then um, the bulk of the uh, seating is actually like outdoor patio seating. So there's a, you know, a fence that kind of runs around the property. And then I would say seating for about 20 inside that. And, uh, you know, it's got like a bench around the fence, some little tables, some little chairs. And, um, you know, it's actually a very nice little patio. It's got like a couple trees in it. And um, yeah, that's, that's where you can enjoy your pizza to stay if that's uh, your, your decision. Sounds charming, but no, uh, no delivery. Not to start. I imagine that that'll be something that uh, at some point will become like, all right, everything's kind of running and, and there's, there's a little bit of a system here for things. Now let's tackle that. And it may be just as simple as, you know, getting involved with the third party apps because, um, uh, yeah, you know, that's what was, was going to be my next question, like DoorDash mm -hmm. or something. Yeah. I mean, the downside of those is that they take a lot of money. Yeah. Um, the upside of those is that they handle things that I would not have to handle, you know, if I like, or that I would have to handle if I was doing um, in-house delivery. Um, anything else pizza related you want to talk about? I have a hand from the commerce here that someone submitted if you want to do any strategy talk. Oh, I'd love to do some strategy talk and uh, I don't have any pressing pizza thoughts. Um, here uh but you know always always happy to talk about pizza carlos pizza questions um i don't have questions i will say that i am a little bit uh i feel like i need to be a little bit careful about my comments because i know east coast pizza consumers are like super serious about it and an east coast pizza maker has to be really serious about it. So and I'm just a fat dude from the South. So like all pizza is good to me. Um, so I definitely have some thoughts about like what make what makes one pizza better than the other because I just literally eat anything. But I I'll keep those thoughts to myself because I know this is a touchy su subject <laughs> for uh, the uh, East Coast. Yeah, you know, I... I kind of it, I kind of uh, occupy an interesting space because I'm I'm one of those people in some ways where you know I have a lot of feelings about pizza and a lot of thoughts and I care about it a lot um but I'm also the kind of person that loves pizza of all types like kind of like what you were saying about yourself like I, uh, you know, for example, I love Costco pizza. I would never say it's the highest quality pizza out there or like, you know, any kind of fine example of like really uh, amazing um, cooking, but I eat it all the time. It's very cheap. It's very delicious. Um, one of my favorite slices I ever had uh, was like period in life. Uh, was from a gas station. Nice. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I was, I was in New Mexico. I was on tour with a band. It was like nine in the morning, but it had just come out in the little display case and you could tell how fresh it was. And I just like, couldn't resist it. I was like, all right, I'll get one of those. And, you know, I probably ate it like two hours later. So it was like room temperature, but it was just so good. And uh, I have since found out that that um, company, which was Godfather's Pizza, belonged to, uh, I believe, Herman Cain. Is that right, Andrew? <laughs> it yes. is right, yes. <laughs> okay, and Andrew had mentioned uh, Godfather specifically recently, so I figured uh, I could fact check that there. Yeah, so, um, and I mean, you know, it, it, it would 
really upset some people from the East Coast to hear me say how much I like Totino's pizza rolls and Costco and a, a New Mexico slice from a Love's truck stop. But um, hey, you know, it's uh, if anything, I'm a little bit more snobby about bagels than I am about pizza because there's just a lot less room for me to tolerate a, like a crappy bagel to me really is crappy. Um, I'll still eat it, but it's like, <laughs> it's, it's much more of a disappointment. Um, whereas like a low quality pizza, like a frozen pizza or something like I'm still pretty happy. I'm still mu- pretty much just like, yeah, I just got pizza. Life is better than it was 10 minutes ago. Yeah. So if you ever have one of these pizzas, you mentioned where, you get the um, 20 inch dough from the uh, bakery and it doesn't come out right when you do it at home. Just pack all that up and send it to me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I will. I will. Yeah. That's, that's a good idea. I'm glad to know that you're uh, willing to take my, my pizza um, (laughs) when it's not up to my par. Exactly. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll take it all. (laughs) <laughs> this reminds me when uh, Carlos, I guess it was, it was when we recorded uh, that, that time that I guess you and Carlos first met when um, in Atlantic City when we did that meetup, but mm-hmm. Carlos had stayed with me in, um, in Pittsburgh. And at that time, there were like maybe as many as four ice cream places within walking distance of our apartment. But I said something like, none of them is, is good ice cream or something. <laughs> Carlos was like, the, the idea of not good ice cream had like never occurred to <laughs> <laughs> it still makes no sense. <laughs> I will say ice cream, cookies, pizza, and most breads. Like those things, you can't go wrong with any of them in my mind. In my mind. Yeah, I do love. I do love carbs. Breads are so good. I love. And I mean, cookies and ice cream. It's it. It is hard to go wrong. But I do feel like there are certain ones that just like they're done so well that it leaves you with that impression of like, Oh yeah. If I go back to like the grocery store cookie, it's just, uh, it's totally in a different class. Well, I think a part of it uh, for me also as someone who's, I mean, I'm not like super weight conscious, but you know, I'm, I'm aware of like how much sugar and calories and things that I'm, I'm eating. And so like, I'm perfectly happy to eat, you know, like good ice cream or whatever. Like I'll make a zillion exceptions for that. Um, if, if it's like some high quality ice cream or pizza or something, but you know, it's not that I don't like <laughs> the lower quality things, but it's more just they, uh, for, if, if we think of it from like a health netcast perspective, they feel like very bad investments to me where I'm like, I'm not enjoying this enough to justify the like health consequences of eating it. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. It's like, Hey, if sugar's not that good for you, maybe the sugar I eat, I want to make sure I really enjoy it. Yeah. That's how I try to think about it, but I, I'll make plenty of exceptions for if, if I am really enjoying it. Like I don't, I don't deny myself. I just try not to waste my sugar budget. I like it. That makes sense. Um, so we have a uh, hand here that was submitted technically for Thinking Poker Daily, but it was from the commerce. So I figured that would be an appropriate one to mm. um, to discuss with you, Sean, since it's your stomping ground. Now, I will say this is from a tournament, which is maybe not so much your um, your wheelhouse. I have played one tournament at the commerce, and uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to I don't want to be the guy that comes on the show and tells a bad beat hand. But it is it was so funny to me what happened because it was just like under the gun min raised. There were like four callers. I was in like the small blind with like pocket nines and like 30-ish big blinds and I jam. Under the gun just goes into the tank forever and eventually does the fuck it I call. Everyone else folds and he has the king nine off and just crushes my pocket nines. <laughs> Sounds like ignition. Yeah, no, it was it was just like, ah, oh, tournaments. I didn't miss this. It was like I hadn't played any <laughs> tournaments for a while. And then I played that one. And it was like, you know, I, I forget one of the series is some some kind of like WPT thing was going on. And it was like probably like a 1K or something. And I was like, I'm going to just jump in this tournament. This will be cool. And like the first few hours were like going well. And then that happened. And I was like, yeah, I'm just going to go play cash. <laughs> 
But yeah, okay. commerce tournament. Let's do it. Yeah. So this hand is coming to us from Dave. Uh, Dave played this hand in an $1,100 multi-day tournament at the commerce. Uh, this is the second of three flights. They're in the money. 20 players remain, but only 19 players will come back to day two. Uh, I don't think there's an explicit reward attached for coming back to day two. Arguably, you could even think of it as a cost of like, well, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you have to drive back to the casino the next day and plan around it and whatnot. So there might even be some reason why, you know, we would prefer to give up a little bit of edge uh, in exchange for giving all the money in and either winning a big pot or going home. But Dave hasn't said any of those things. So let's pretend that's not Dave's incentive. Um, we're playing 4K, 8K with an 8K big blind ante, seven-handed, and the under-the-gun player who has 400K, which is about 50 big blinds, the under-the-gun player limps. And Dave says that um, this player is an older whale. I played with him early in the day. Our table broke. I'm just seeing him again after the money bubble. It's likely he plays on that crazy hustler live stream and $1,100 is not terribly important to him. He had a wide range earlier, but I did not remember him doing any limping. Uh, Dave says the limp is weird and suspect. And since I have not seen the villain limp, I'm concerned about a limp re-raise. So it ends up happening. The under the gun limps, um, the uh, hijack also limps off of a 100 pick blind stack. And then the hero is in the cutoff with queen jack suited and a little over 30 big blinds. Um, actually, I guess like 35 big blinds. Uh, so I guess the first question is, do we want to raise here? Or I mean, I, I think that absent that kind of suspicion around the under the gun being um, be, like, if this was just, I, I'd never seen this person before I didn't know. And I assumed that they were someone who did limp off. And this strikes me as a slam dunk raise. Um, there's lots of good reasons to want to isolate these players and trap some dead money in the pie. Queen Jack suited plays very well after the flop has good equity. Uh, so is, is the, suspicious limp here enough to deter us from raising so we got like 30 something big blinds here 34 ish um right yeah i mean i just think that the the um reasons that you want to like raise and like potentially get some folds from button and the blinds and you know I, I i don't think i can be I, i'm never that worried by a person limping that i'm gonna just like completely change things you know even if i'm like 50 percent sure that i'm gonna face a limp re-raise like i think i'm still just like i i just want to put in an iso raise here um i think limping it's like, yeah, Queen Jack suited. I feel like it's not going to suffer that much if you limp and then like terrible things happen uh, and, and you had to like fold out your equity for, for a limp. But I feel like the upside of uh, trying to raise and, you know, uh, maybe give Button and the blinds a reason to get out of there and then maybe see a heads up uh, pot on the flop seems uh, in position seems like a pretty good thing to me so um i'm leaning strongly towards you know putting in let's say four-ish big blinds might seem like a good size carlos anything you want to add to that yeah i i think i would live behind here specifically because get, dave gave the read that he'd never seen this guy limp before but he also said this guy had a wide range so that means he's raising a wide range. And then you have to kind of wonder, well, if he's raising the wide stuff, what is he limping? And I disagree with Sean when he says that even if he has to raise and fold like 50% of the time, I could maybe get behind 20% and I'll be okay with that. But not seeing the flop with his hand 50% of the time is sounds very painful to me. Um, the other thing is, not getting the blinds out, I don't think is a big concern with this hand because you will have position on those players and they're probably a range advantage as well. I don't know about a range advantage, but your hand will definitely be far ahead of their range. And this hand plays well in a multi-way pot in position. So I'm not concerned about the blind so much. Um, I'm a little bit concerned about the button, but that's only one player. And also the um, hijack, if he's not as observant, he may also be somewhat 
um, capped here as well. Um, there's some chance he could be um, concerned about the limpers range, which would potentially strengthen his limp behind range as well. But if he's not concerned about that, then I feel good about having position and a hand that's ahead of the range of the hijack and both blinds. And I get a little bit of protection from what I am worried about in the undergun, under the gun player's range. And um, also, if we raise and get action, um, this hand, like, it's not like we have ace-king here. So if we raise and strengthen their range, they we may strengthen it to the point where it's in better shape against our hand, given that we actually just have queen high. So, yeah, I don't mind keeping the ranges wide and um, and having multiple advantages on basically everybody except for under the gun and the button. I got a question for both of you guys, because I think everything that you just said, Carlos, sounded very uh, good and very smart. And I'm just wondering, like, you're talking about uh, day one of a tournament with an older whale that, like, maybe play like how many hands have you really like the fact that this guy has never been seen limping before, I think gets like a lot of weight here to the point where we're considering like making like our whole strategy decision based on it. Like, do we really think that like one hand where this guy that doesn't usually limp limps is like, I mean, if he's already playing a wide range and limping most of the time, I definitely agree that it's like suspicious and it sets off some alarm bells and stuff. But like, I also think it's very possible that like, if we um he could be the same guy that like you put in a few uh, big blinds as a raise and then he springs the trap and he limp re-raises you and he makes it like six big blinds you know what i'm saying and i'm not saying that that's like the best situation in the world but i also just wonder if like um you know the I, i i often see these situations where someone has like X player never does Y and, and it's like, yeah, but uh, is this like as strong of a read as we really think it is? So I was just curious if you guys had any thoughts on that. I, I think you make a good point and it, and it gives me an opportunity to bring up something that um, we talked about on the last episode, which is if you're going to make a big adjustment to your strategy, you need very solid information. Like, for example, mm. if you had ace-queen here, I think even with your suspension, with your suspicion, that hand is so strong that you still want to go ahead and raise it. But this hand is already kind of like, you know, not the top of our range. So mm. it doesn't take much of much suspicion in one way or the other to make an adjustment with, with this sort of hand. But I wouldn't be like, um, I wouldn't be um, too careful with, the better hands versus this guy based on the little information we have. Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. And I also like what you said about like, it's really only button that's like going to cause us like the biggest problems, like the blinds will still have position on them. So like, yeah, cool. I can be convinced that a limp seems reasonable. The main thing that I want to emphasize here for, for listeners is that, you know, we're weighing a lot of things here. This is not as simple of a decision of, oh, it would suck to get re-raised, so I won't raise. I, th- I think that's a, a common, um, I think it keeps people from being aggressive in a lot of situations. They're sort of like, well, I didn't three bex, I didn't want to get four better. Or, I didn't bex, I didn't want to get check raised. It matters a lot how, how likely are those things to happen, which is the main thing that we're sort of not even exactly disagreeing about, just sort of speculating on what kind of evidence we have. Um, that so the question is like how likely is it that under the gun is is going to re-raise and also what is that re-raising range going to look like i think that's also important um getting re-raised getting limp re-raised by ace king or pocket nines assuming we're not going to call the re-raise which i mean sean raised the issue of what if it's a really small re-raise which is possible but let's set that aside let's assume we're going to be folding to the re-raise um folding to a limp re-raise from ace king or pocket nines sucks we lose a lot of equity when that happens folding to a limp free raise from pocket aces is not that big of a deal we probably weren't going to be pocket aces anyway um so you know it, it does matter like how wide will that limp free raising range be both in terms of how likely is it that it's going to happen but also how much equity are we losing when we fold to it now if we knew for sure that this person had aces we still wouldn't want to raise even though you know we're not going to be losing that much equity when we fold just because we don't want to put 
three big blinds or whatever out there. I will say that in this general situation where you're sort of like, well, that's kind of a suspicious raise. It's not like a guarantee that I'm going to get re-raised, but I want to sort of minimize my, my risk. Um, you're not obliged to make a large raise here. And I know Sean mentioned four. I could even see raising to like two and a half or three mm. where you're not expecting that the limpers are going to fold. What you are trying to do is you're trying, you're not letting the big blind see the flop for free. You're charging a much higher price to the small blind. You're making it more expensive for the button to come in. You're avoiding capping your range. You know, of course you would want to raise here if you had aces. So you know, raising here with, with queen jack suited, you are keeping open the possibility that you, that you might have aces. And again, I'm not saying that's necessarily the right play in this situation. I just want to make sure that people know that that's a tool in your toolbox. You're not not obliged to say, well, I have to raise three X plus one per every limper. Um, you're allowed to make small raises in that and just accept, I'm going to get called by these limpers, but that's fine. Queen Jack suited, I expect to be doing as long as this is true. Like if you think that you'll be doing fine against their limp calling ranges, it's okay to say, you know, I'll make the small raise. If I get re-raised, like that'll happen sometimes, but not always. And I'll just fold open. It won't be the end of the world. And there's so much value from, from raising both building a pot when you have a good hand in position and also uh, the fold equity that you get from the players behind you that that's just a risk worth taking yeah that's a good point uh in the handing question our hero does limp behind for the reasons that we've discussed um the button folds small blind completes um small blind also covers the hero and the big blind checks the big blind is the one person we don't get their stack basically everyone is covering our hero and we're going to end up playing this as a five-way pot with the hero being in absolute position with again queen jack suited and the flop is jack eight deuce rainbow there's now 48k in the pot. Um, our hero does have a backdoor flush draw. Specifically, here has queen jack of spades. The board is jack of hearts, eight of spades, deuce of diamonds. There is 48k in the pot, about 260k in the hero stacks. SPR is a little over five in a five way pot. And the action checks around to our hero. So everyone in front of us checks. Uh, and now we have the option of betting or checking with our top pair backdoor flush draw, backdoor straight draw. Um, my inclination is to think that it is a five-way pot, so we, don't, we can't just be firing here arbitrarily, but as the player in position, we get to do more betting than, than other people do. We have the information of seeing people check ahead of us. Our hand is good enough that we can expect to be doing well against um, the hand that will check call us. We do benefit to some degree from denying equity. Multi-way pots denying equity is, is always valuable. Uh, I'm pretty inclined to bet here, but I'm curious if anyone, um, if either of you would, would do something different. I would bet. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, if I was not last to act, I would probably be much more inclined to check. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think being that we have position and all the other things you said, I would be leaning towards a bet for those reasons. Multi-way pots do tend to reward small bet sizes. Um, and exactly this kind of hand is one where uh, even a slightly weaker, even if we had like a you know, jack nine or something, I, I still think we would want to bet it. And it is the sort of thing where if you made a large, if you were to like pot it here, then you might start to feel like, well, if someone's willing to call about that large, maybe my hand isn't good. But when you use a smaller size, you still get a lot of the protection value of betting and you get called by a wider range, which is actually good for you when you're making a sort of thin bed. And just to justify my use of the word thin here, it's because we're playing a five-way pot. I mean, a heads-up pot, we would say, oh, you know, the top pair with a good kicker is very, very likely to be the best hand. In a five-way spot, you have to be able to beat the best of four other hands <laughs> to justify betting this for value. And um, that's not trivial. I mean, e even with a good hand like, like top pair, it helps a lot that you've seen all those people check in front and people could be slow playing, but you have some information that no one um, thinks their hand is, is fantastic, which many of the better than, than Queen Jack could fall into that category. So I think we can bet here. I think we're not looking to use a huge size. Um, here, about 22 into 48. Um, you could probably even go smaller. I could say going as small as like 15K here, but I think here is on the right track. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was imagining I would bet like maybe 12. Uh, I could even see betting as small as 8 to 10 or 16 was a number that first came to mind, but yeah. Yeah, I do know small is correct in theory. I will say another reason I like this bet is because not only has everyone checked to us, but also nobody raised pre. So that's going to remove a lot of hands like ace jack. Um, 
I don't know, man. Some of these people are so passive that they probably just wouldn't raise Ace Jack. Um, King Jack could still be in there, but for the most part, we can at least discount Ace Jack. So I think that puts our hand a little bit closer to the nuts. So, and we're up against a bunch of livers who might be passive players that we can um, exploit for a bigger size if we think they're more likely to have a hand like Jack 10 and King Jack or Ace Jack. I think that's okay, but in theory, I do think that we should be betting smaller than this. Agreed. Um, here best 22K and the small blind raises to 70K. Uh, the big blind and the two limpers fold and now action is back to the hero. So the hero has queen jack of spades, the board is jack of hearts, eight of spades, deuce of diamonds. It initially checked around to the hero who bet 22K into 48K. And now the small blind has check raised to 70k uh, and Ooh. the effective stack uh, hero if, if the hero were to call this um, would have about 200k behind which would be roughly a, a slightly over a pop size bet on, on the turn yeah boo, boo is certainly my first feeling um, <laughs> I'm pretty inclined to just fold I mean yeah <laughs> I think for, so uh, I, I think there's not really in theory th this should not be a worse hand than ours going for value like this shouldn't be like jack 10 or, or, or jack 9 check raising um, I, I was already kind of saying that queen jack was a little thin so I, I think it would be um, ambitious especially this is a fairly large raise because again like we were saying small um Multi-way pots tend to call for smaller sizes. There could be some reason for this person to check raise Jack 10 to try to deny equity to other people behind them. But I think they, you know, if I were doing that, I'd want to make it more like 50 or 55K rather than 70. So as this race starts getting larger, it should be a little bit more polar and less likely to be the you know, best case scenario for us, which would be like the thin value check raise from, from Jack 10 or Jack 9. There is the possibility that this is just like kind of less sophisticated player who doesn't understand that. And Dave does give us the read of... Um, the small blind recently doubled up in a spot where he flatted a raise with 15 big blinds and ace-10 offsuit. Um, we don't have any more details. Dave says it's the thought that at the spot where he would have considered like a jammer fold decision and he was kind of surprised that the small blind just flatted with it. Um, I don't know what exactly the implications of that would be for, for this hand. Um, not that it's not relevant, just I don't have a, you know, I, I could see arguments one way or the other uh, in terms of what that means here. But, you know, I think this is, I'm not too excited about our hand at this point, I guess. <laughs> this is where I'm going yeah, I, know, I know what it means. It means this guy's a passive player. And so when a passive player check raises you in a five-way pot, <laughs> you fold a weak top pair. Like, like, like when you say a boo, I'm thinking like, this doesn't even bother me. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah not not I, boo. Like, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. Thank you for the information. Thanks for <laughs> putting in a huge raise from the worst seat, the worst position. Yeah. Like, I think I would fall to this guy even without that read. But so basically what I like to say is at least in the soft games that I play, or at least I used to play, um, the smaller stakes on ignition, um, I would say probably 80% of the players are too passive. And then if I see that a hand like this ace 10 hand, that probably bumps this up to 90, maybe even 100% likelihood that he's passive. So 80 is enough to make me fold this hand. But if you give me something that potentially gets it up to 90 or 100, yeah, this is a hand that I'm happy to fold because the guy has me beat. So I'm saying yay instead of boo because I'm not going to pay him off like a lot of people that um, play in these games. And also what some people might say is maybe the guy has something like jack eight and we messed up by not raising. We allowed him to get in there with a hand, and that's why we lost. But my response to that is, um, if he has Jack 8, he also has Jack 7, Jack 6, Jack 5, Jack, five, jack 10. He's got a lot more Jacks that we do beat that will probably check and call. If we, if we bet flop, he calls and everybody folds, turns a brick, and we bomb turn, he'll probably call with all that stuff. So I'm okay to lose a small pot the the one time he hits um his two pair out of i'm guessing with all his jacks it's probably like around 10 to 15 percent of the time so during those instances i lose a small pot in the times where i have the best hand, i probably want a big pot and that's a pretty good trade-off in my mind mm -hmm. yeah i agree with that mm -hmm. sean anything you want to add Nope, you guys got it. 
Um, I'm assuming that Hero did fold because this is the last uh, of the hand <laughs> that they shared yeah, with he us. Says it. I did. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> he says he bets 22, the guy raises a seven, and then it says Hero folds. Okay. Sorry, I missed that. Uh, yeah, sure. I do see that. So, yeah, I, I, I think we're all in agreement with that. It's just, um, it was, I mean, it's not that we couldn't possibly name a hand that this person could be bluffing with, but raising, I mean, A, we're showing a lot of strength betting into this many people. Even when we've seen them check in front of us, we still you know, need a, a decent hand to make this bet. And then for this person, the check raise, there is still the risk that one of these other limpers is actually sandbagging with pocket eights or pocket twos or something like that. I mean, to, to raise into this many people is a, a substantial risk. And we should assume that um, in multi-way pots, people tend to be fairly honest. They, it's just the game theory is, is pretty honest. Solvers are fairly honest in multi-way pots and humans, I think, are even more so. Uh, so I don't think a lot of people are, are trying to get ambitious with their bluffing in this uh, situation. And you know, I, I do think we just have a bluff catcher in a spot where we're not terribly likely to be facing a bluff. We're really not going to get a lot more clarity on the turn. We can pick up some just some draws, but it's not. We're not going to improve our equity that much, no matter what the turn card is. Even if we were to turn a jack, there's like we could still be behind. Um, we're, we're still right. behind a lot of the hands that we're worried about the gun having. So we're not really going to get a lot more clarity here. Um, there's one other point that, that Dave raised that uh, I don't know if this would influence my decision, but it is an interesting. Um, Dave says that uh, since this is a tournament that uh, plays to a fixed number of players instead of a fixed time, there is a chance that on day two, the blinds will roll back and my stack utility will increase. So I think what he's saying is that because it's a three-day tournament and everyone is playing down to, I guess, 19 players or some percentage of the field, they're probably going to roll back the blinds to whichever uh, day played the shortest amount of time and everyone will like restart as they were at that time. So it's possible that his stack will be more big blinds coming into the next day. I don't know that that would influence my decision too much. Um, I don't know if you guys see a, a reason why it might. It doesn't influence my decision. The the thing about the stack rolling back, the idea, the idea that this is a tournament does influence my decision because yeah. one of the things I learned from you is that you do have to be careful with these. Um, you need to reach a higher bar to um, bluff catch in tournaments than you do in cash games. And then also the idea that this is the end of day one is pretty deep in this tournament. So you bet fold here, you leave yourself with 30 bigs. That's not a small stack to take to day two in most tournaments. Like you can do some work with, with that sort of stack. You give me, you know, 30 bigs, like level two of a tournament where the average stack is like 70 or 80, then I might start, you know, being a little bit less concerned about my um, tournament life or the, or my stack utility going forward. But 30 bigs going into day two, like, you know, that's more than a lot of people have. Yeah, I mean, the, the one other thing I could see, if, if we were really short here, uh, I could see, this is the point I was making earlier about there's actually a little bit of a penalty for, for making day two, uh, especially if there was something else that you were kind of interested in, in doing the next day that was not <laughs> poker. If it was like, you know, you had 12 big blinds and you bet here and the person check raises the amount that would put you all in and like folding would lead you with a really short stack coming back to day two, you might sort of say, well, it's not really worth it to me to come back just to like bust out and level one of the next day. So, um, you know, maybe I'll, I'll take a little bit of a, a gamble here or something. I don't think that would be completely irrational, but I don't think that's the situation we're in right now. Yeah, in my mind, I would say, I would say, say to myself, I'm literally about to punt right now. Yeah, <laughs> and I, if I, I would not be thinking that I'm ever good. <laughs> this is not a good decision. I just don't want to bring this struggle stack back to this uh, live tournament where I have to sit around these humans with you know during the pandemic. So yeah, you give me a short enough stack, I'll call off here knowing that this guy has me crushed. But thirty bigs <laughs> is not a short stack. <laughs> Yeah, and maybe it's more than thirty if he runs good and the and the clock rolls back. I mean, how often do you come back and your your big blinds have gone higher without your stack changing? Yeah, that's pretty sweet. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dave, for writing. Good fold. Uh, thank you, Sean, good for sharing your your wisdom and insight with us. Oh, it was such a pleasure to be a part of a Thinking Poker Daily moment on the Thinking Poker podcast. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to to talk about that we haven't gotten around to? Anything musically interesting going on in your life? Uh, let's see. I I wish I could give you some uh, exciting musically interesting news. Uh, you know what? I'll I'll plug um, 
a friend of mine just put out a great album that I've been enjoying a lot. That's a, a nice thing to leave people with. Um, the artist is known as Graham Hunt. And uh, I will actually just say, check out all his albums. He just put one out a week ago or so, um, but you know, they're all good. Um, we met each other uh, as, as the two guitarists who were touring um, with our friend, Mike Kroll also great musician um and uh yeah it's it's been nice getting to know graham sadly the few shows that we had scheduled for april of this year uh he came he, he tested covid positive like the night he got into la so we had a brief rehearsal together where luckily i uh was masked up and nothing nothing came of it but yeah so Go ahead, take a listen to Graham's music, support him. And uh, maybe next time we talk, uh, I'll have some exciting music news of my own to share. I got, I got one last question that I know is on the um, minds of everyone out there in Nitcast Nation. Mm. So if we lose Sean, Sean's editing abilities, can we at least keep the theme music? So here's, I'm just going to give you the, honest to god truth on air <laughs> which is i have not consulted any of my uh former palmyra bandmates about this yet um but i am assuming that everyone will be happy to uh have the music uh continue on i that's just one of those messages i haven't gotten around to sending out yet but let's just assume that everybody's cool and uh I would, I would hope that the music continues on just because I've gotten used to hearing, you know, it's funny being in the actual band myself. Uh, and, and this was years ago that that band was active. This was like, you know, 2008-ish was I think when it started and it went for a few years. Um, at the time, it was just a band I played in with a friend, I, friends I had known for a very long time. And uh, while I enjoyed the music and the times, um, it was just, you know, something something that happened and easily could have just faded into the past um but thanks to the thinking poker podcast using that music i've actually come to have a bigger appreciation for all of it and and it's and it's kind of been like oh yeah it was cool that i did that then and, and you know andrew has said to me many times that some of the most frequent um questions he gets is people just saying like hey what's this music and um you know for those who don't know the true story, when I became an editor, I was given a template from, uh, I think Nate gave it to me. And the thing about audio templates is that they often don't have the audio files in them. So even though he thought he was giving me a template with some theme music, uh, it was empty of music. So it was sort of a last minute, hey, guys, you want me to just throw some music on here? And then it stuck. So um, I hope it continues on uh, past the era of me editing the show. I, I think we kind of buried the lead here because I don't know if we actually told people. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> uh, part, of, part of this whole, um, the, uh, the Papa Sean venture here is that uh, you are going to be stepping down as, as our audio engineer. So uh, thank you for all that you've done for the show over the years. Yes. And we certainly will uh, miss having you in, in that capacity. But uh, as, as Carla said, hopefully we'll be able to continue to enjoy your uh, strumming on, <laughs> on our intros and outros. And you know, hopefully this won't be the last time that we have you on here as a guest. Yeah, I would love to come back. I propose that we invite Nate next time just for a little uh, reunion. And this is not a slight to Carlos. I'm sure Carlos knows that, but I just want to say it for Andrew's sake. Um, no, I, I would love to come back. And um, I'm actually really looking forward to becoming a, once again, just a listener to the show. Because when you listen to edit audio and you're listening to like snip out a noise here and like uh, a mistake there, you don't really get to enjoy the show the same way you would if you were just like putting it on and pressing play. So I'm excited to start to be just a regular consumer of the Thinking Poker podcast again. I will try to get you on with the, uh, the A-team next time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Carlos, don't listen to this guy. <laughs> with, our, with our first string host. 
Don't listen to this guy. I'm, you know, really, I'm just looking for an excuse to get us all on on the air together and, uh, you know, talk about pizza and poker. <laughs> yeah, the, the only thing I'll request is that for that episode, I'll request you do one guest editing of it also. So I can get one of those um, cool Easter eggs you put after the music for me. Like, uh, that's what I'm going to miss the most. Oh, I I will absolutely guest edit. And, um, you know, it's if there was always a good candidate for an Easter egg, there would be one in every single episode. But sometimes you guys are just too perfect and you just bang <laughs> it out without any any mistakes or anything funny and, uh, you know, any bloopers and all that stuff. So, you know, um, yeah, you, you guys could... Uh, stand to mess up a little more or do some <laughs> things like that and then we'll have more easter eggs <laughs> all right well thank you very much sean it's good talking to you as always and best of luck with the new venture thank you andrew and thank you carlos thank you see you of a car light of the fair passage of a bill and who will sign us into law I know you won't you won't you won't you won't will you you won't you won't you won't you won't will you you won't you won't you won't you won't you won't sign I drafted up a beautiful contract But I guess worst case scenario, uh, you can just re-record yourself saying a different number and put it on. Yes, <laughs> three hundred eighty-one.